I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. Welcome to School of Everything Else. Retro Gaming and Emulation. This is a special episode all about playing video games from now defunct and retired systems. Now, as you folks at home may or may not be aware, the emulation side of video games has been around for a long, long time, originating on PC. And there have been sterling advances in utilizing Raspberry Pi systems in this regard for something more portable or TV connecting. But since 2020, around the time the pandemic began, a number of handhelds were manufactured and released in China that were considerably more powerful and intuitive than the cheap, janky ones that have been knocking around before. The proliferation of these fed a market that was stuck in lockdown and absolutely starving for something to delve into. Ever since then, there has been a deluge of updates, different form factors and operating systems, to the point where not only is it a daunting prospect to enter into this hobby, but this episode would date almost immediately if I were to only talk about what's available right now. I want to go deeper, be more informative and helpful and hopefully entertaining, even if you have no interest or would never emulate games on moral grounds. It's not a buyer's guide so much as an exploration as to why folks might emulate games for reasons beyond the monetary. What I'm trying to convey to you is my passion for this particular subject and why it might be of interest. Section one, retro handhelds. And to give some perspective on the making of this episode, this is the first series of notes I've written that actually had a contents section. That's how much I've written here. So before we start talking about the whys, let me make clear the basics of what happened between 2020 and the time of this recording. There are three major manufacturers that are worthy of note here, Retroid, Ambonic and Powkiddy. Each of these three has released a bunch of different handhelds, nearly all of them with confusing names like the RG350 and the RG351 and the RG351V and the RGB10 and the RGB10 Max and the RGB10 Max 2 and the Pocket 2 and the Pocket 2 Plus and the Pocket Go S30, which is nothing to do with the Pocket or the Pocket 2 or the Pocket 2 Plus and is in fact made by a different company and the V90 and the Q20 mini so i could reel off all these serial numbers it wouldn't make up like, no one would understand what i was talking about even if you looked at images of each one that i just named there you'd be like i still don't like i can't tell the difference between a lot of these they look like 29 different brundle flies of the game boy advance and the switch light utterly impenetrable from the outside so i will endeavor to not throw these code names at you folks and i will try to only mention specific models if i really recommend them or they're really important for the moment but arguably this began with the analog pocket 
Analog are different from the above companies in several regards. For a start, they're based in America, and for many years they manufactured premium, bespoke machines that were effectively a really fancy Super Nintendo or a really fancy Sega Genesis with a cartridge slot, an HDMI out, and Bluetooth controller connectivity. Priced at around the $200 mark, these were designed for people who had already been carefully collecting vintage cartridges for many years, and they wanted a machine that would make these 30-year-old games look good on a modern TV because you can't just shove it into the RF socket and hope for the best. The analog pocket was the fancy handheld equivalent capable of playing your legitimate Game Boy, Game Boy Color, and Game Boy Advance cartridges. Plus, with four separate $30 adapters, Game Gear, Atari Lynx, Neo Geo Pocket, and TurboGrafx-16. And I warrant that uh, several of our listeners are like, the what, the what, the what, and the what now? Mm -hmm. That was me. (laughs) That's fine. (laughs) I know what the Game Gear is. Okay, so Analog showed this shiny bit of kit off at the announcement stage and the pre-orders mounted up at the end of 2019. Unfortunately for Analog, the the pandemic then hit, unfortunately for a lot of us, followed by the global chip shortage causing multiple delays. It took until December 2021 for those pre-orders to be fulfilled. Now, what that confluence of events added up to was an internet full of gamers slavering over the idea of an analog pocket and playing all of their old favourites on the go. But they had no on the go to be on. And whether they had pre-ordered with analog and were now waiting in a state of frustration or hadn't pre-ordered and were looking for an alternative, maybe a cheaper alternative, the Chinese manufacturers mentioned above suddenly found a very receptive buyer's market. And by no means were these the first emulation handhelds. They were just the first ones that you'd play and go, oh, these are actually pretty good. Like the the ones before them were like, ah, well, I suppose you get what you pay for. Like this was the turning point when it became a bit more than you get what you pay for. Well, I mean, uh, you may have played before those things you could get in malls that were like, play 30 Sega Genesis games on this little handheld. It's got a screen, you know, of a sort, and they'll play, I mean, of a sort, and you'll have fun. I mean... Of a sort. <laughs> See, my brain is filling in the little Casio game and yeah. watch thing. That's not the same thing at no, all. Okay. No, this is more like <laughs> a little bit better than that. It's Sonic the Hedgehog. You see, <clears throat> before we carry on forwards, uh, this is something I haven't written about because it's not something I know about. But there are people who love to play games on original hardware and really don't want to play emulation because there is a difference. I can't exactly tell you the fine difference between the two because to me, it doesn't matter. There's like a nanomillisecond delay between pressing jump and actually jumping. And uh, you know, a lot of people who are purists want the real thing. Now that's what the analog pocket was offering. And it's not necessarily what emulation handhelds were. So there are a lot of people who are like, I will wait for my pocket, thank you very much. Now, since most of the chips are manufactured in China, the folks who were manufacturing these little handhelds had access to the available stock while the rest of the world had to wait. Now, if you use an emulator on PC, it runs like an app that scans your folder full of ROM files, which you have to tell where to scan. A ROM file is the information stored on each cartridge, the game itself in code form. The emulator then approximates the console or handheld with mixed results. 
the handhelds being made at this point were collections of these digital emulation program apps. So you had a load of different emulators arranged on a dedicated operating system with the ROMs being stored on a removable micro SD card. So you, you switch them on, you select your system, you browse that library, and then you start playing. So lots of these start selling in early 2020. One in particular, the Android-based Retroid Pocket 2, could handle Nintendo 64 rather well. And this is a notable achievement, as that was such a notoriously tricky system to emulate that Nintendo themselves didn't even bother with an N64 follow-up to their NES Mini Classic and SNES Mini Classic machines, launched respectively in 2016 and 2017. People were expecting, oh, what's next? Is it going to be the N64 Mini? Maybe the Game Boy Mini? And I think I was fantasizing about the Game Boy Mini so much that eventually I was like, well, this emulating machine is pretty much what I've been looking forward to anyway. And the analog pocket's even better, but that's not available now. And this is, mm, this is also a lot cheaper. So, and I was still just waiting for Nintendo to pull their finger out. But then when Nintendo's online component turned up and it was like, play these 28 NES games and these 14 SNES games. It just seemed like, oh, you're not going to do this much at all. We'd all been waiting for this, the Netflix of, of game streaming services from Nintendo with their insane library. And it's, I haven't written a section on um, the Nintendo's online component, but it is, it's small and meager. Back when the N64 was being developed for, they didn't actually send out the code of the N64 to the developers. It was kind of like, you can, like, here... Guess it, what we've got written on this card. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it, it effectively meant that N64 games were programmed differently depending on the developer. So, as a result, N64 games now run differently on different emulators. So, rather than having one emulator, a catch-all that will play all of them, you kind of have to fine-tune a series of emulators and tell whatever system you're using, which one to use and at which settings per game. It's frustrating. And one person having to slog through and, and do this by trial and error is laborious and far, far too much for one person. But uh, that's where the community comes in more on that later. <laughs> Okay, so back to the... Do you remember the, the NES Mini and the SNES Mini that I was talking about just now? Uh, these micro consoles are basically a little Raspberry Pi in a fun-shaped plastic box with a micro SD card loaded up with a whopping 30 and 21 ROMs, respectively. Notably, the replicated classic controllers were wired for those things and had cables so bewilderingly short that most of us had to sit with our noses to our massive screens in a ludicrous bastardization of the way we used to play games. Remember that? Do, do parents now say, don't sit that close to the TV, you'll get widescreen eyes? Because when I was a kid, it was square eyes. I think now they say, don't get that so close to the screen, you'll knock it over and I'll have to buy a new mm -hmm. one. Or you'll get the, your, your retinas will get burned by the HD. Potentially so. Back to the Chinese handhelds of 2020. Many of these machines used a very specific and mass-produced chipset called the Rockchip RK3326. I'm only going to say that code once, folks, but it's it's a specific chipset. And it, it has its limits, and they kind of found that limit within the course of the year. Like They kind of hit their ceiling on what could be done on this type of handheld. 
Now the Linux-based systems made by Ambernick and Powkiddy didn't handle N64 or Dreamcast or PSP quite as well as Android, which led to Retroid being regarded as kind of your catch-all machine. The Retroid Pocket 2 did very well. It was also priced very reasonably. Possibly why there were so many form factor variations from Retroid's competitors, all chasing that wow factor, courting YouTube channels which went from strength to strength talking about each new release. I've found the highest profile, most trustworthy and nuanced critiques include Techie Udon, Retro Dodo, and my personal favorite, the chummy, softly spoken and enthusiastic Russ from Retro Game Core. <laughs> Section 2. Vintage Games Another factor that is significant as all of these gamers were being satiated with thousands of ROMs, customising and tweaking their gameplay experiences and libraries as the long months of lockdown dragged on and analogue pocket pre-order folks told themselves the long, long wait would be worth it. The vintage market of pre-owned cartridges also exploded. There were uh, various appraising companies who kind of like, like raised the price of video games by appraising them as being worth so much money that non-appraised versions were also worth a lot more money, if that makes sense. Mm. Somebody posted about that in the Discord today, I think, yeah. where there was a, a picture of a... A Dragon Ball Z game yeah, for $800, like $800 for what? a PS2 game. <laughs> But for those with available spare income and no going outside, the chance to revisit their simple childhood pleasures was there to be fulfilled. The prices on not even particularly rare or particularly great games went up and up, and I know a bunch of folks who like to show off their collections, but who must have found that particular period frustratingly expensive. It's still not fantastic right now. And at the same time, original hardware became something viewed with increasing fondness and a sense of the special. In particular, original Game Boys, original Game Boy Colors, and Game Boy Advance handhelds that have been sitting in drawers for years were taken out and often rejuvenated. If you've ever been lucky enough to see a restoration performed upon a piece of junk by the YouTube channel Odd Tinkering, you'll maybe share my own sense of awe and satisfaction, admiration, and an almost bittersweet wistfulness at seeing a knackered, yellowed old clunker with a burned screen and rusted battery contacts being washed with soapy water by careful gloved hands accompanied by a rubber ducky, as not a word is spoken and the shell is restored to cleanliness, and then UV blasted over a day to remove the yellowing effect. Meanwhile, the motherboard inside is cleaned and the contacts are treated and soldered where necessary, and then the screen is either fixed or replaced as the machine is put back together with as few new parts as possible on the part of our tinkering. Obviously, a bunch of other channels were like, we're gonna use all of these aftermarket parts. They're inexpensive to get hold of and you can reshell your GBA for not too much. I love the way they always say, it's so easy, you just do this, all you need is your soldering iron, I'll stop you there. It's not easy unless you're that kind of person. It, it just felt therapeutic to watch as this machine is put back together and as, with as few parts as possible and the rust scoured away, the repugnant filthy nugget cleansed and purified until it looks shiny and new. In no uncertain terms, this sends my beleaguered brain the message that nothing is beyond saving. Nothing is too broken or ruined. 
And that is a philosophy that we badly need to embrace as a species. Restoring a Game Boy Advance that has only seen medium wear is a similar process. This isn't something most of us will be able to do, but watching the, I call them solder boys, watching them work their magic is similarly therapeutic. Often the worn shell is replaced with a new one along with the buttons and rubber contact pads, and notably some of these aftermarket replacements are better quality than Nintendo manufactured in the year 2000. The tinny speaker can potentially be replaced with a weightier modern equivalent. The space for two AA batteries can be switched out for a rechargeable battery pack. Best of all, though, the dark, murky old screens that the GBA was unwisely launched with can be replaced by backlit IPS screens. I cannot express to you the strange pleasure of picking up what is still ostensibly the same GBA I first bought at launch and had to sit by the window just so I could see the screen, only now it plays with a bright, sharp picture. It has made me fall in love with Game Boy Advance games all over again. Having shelled out for this expensive service, though, I had hoped to get hold of a handful of original cartridge games and only play a few of them, focusing my experience on quality, not quantity, only to come up against the ballooning prices on the secondary market and the prolific groundswell of unofficial Nintendo cartridges on eBay. These are effectively the ROM flashed onto a reproduction cartridge. They were never boxed on the shelves of GameStop, but if you want to play Pokemon Fire Red right now, you either pay 60 pounds, this is, I'm doing this in pounds for British prices, and that at this point in time, by the way, you pay roughly in pounds what you do in dollars, that's how weak our currency is it's right now. slightly better than it was a couple of weeks ago, but it's okay. still not fair. But yeah, you either pay 60 pounds for an unboxed official Pokemon Fire Red, making sure that the seller has a photo of the cartridge opened up so that you can assess the genuine circuit board and battery. And by the way, you will absolutely have to familiarize yourself with the finer details of these if you only want to play genuine cartridges. Or you pay £25 even for a cartridge that isn't genuine. Under these circumstances, you can see why a lot of folks are turning to ROM emulation. Like, if you're just going to play a ROM anyway, you may as well just get it without having to pay this middleman. When the analog pocket finally got sent out in December of 2021, two years after the pre-orders, it was far behind the advances in Chinese emulation handhelds, and the buyers were faced with a buyer's market of astronomically expensive second-hand cartridges. They'd crept up in the interim time while they were waiting for their analogs to come through. However, more recently, codes suspiciously leaked through <laughs> at the same day as an update to the analog pocket, which allowed owners to reconfigure their, their pocket to be able to house cores that would play ROMs, making it the fanciest version of much cheaper Game Boy emulators. But the analog pocket can also play official Nintendo cartridges, should those ever avail themselves. <laughs> Section 3. It's about ethics in video games. I apologize for this title. However, unlike a certain 2014 female harassment campaign masquerading as legitimate safeguarding of gaming journalism, the principle of emulation actually does pose an ethical quandary. And I think this is where we are going to get the most back and forth discussion on this show, potentially. Because, of course, 
It's a legal minefield, and we like to believe, especially as children, that the laws of our society are based on true and decent values, and they are there to protect all of us, rather than just those at the top for whom these rules and laws seemingly don't apply. Let me build you a model for this. In the year 2013, the game Super Mario Bros. 3 could be legitimately purchased from Nintendo in various ways. You could buy it on the Virtual Console of the Wii, and the Virtual Console of the Wii U, and the Virtual Console of the 3DS. Under those circumstances, downloading and playing an NES ROM on a PC emulator would have been a legitimate decision to not pay Nintendo the asking price for their versions of Super Mario Bros. 3 that they were offering. Now. Take into account the fact that if you bought it on Wii Virtual Console before 2013, you then had to pay a little bit more to get it to run directly off the menu of your Wii U, and your 3DS purchase was entirely separate and wouldn't play anywhere else. Also take into account the relative value of an NES ROM that contains less data than a low-resolution JPEG of its own title screen. Sharon's mouth is stiffening up. <laughs> you could make an argument that they were overpriced or that they were priced just right. That's not what concerns me at this point. Maybe your parents got you the Nintendo cartridge in 1990 after you watched The Wizard and said, Mom, Mom, I've got to get Super Mario Brothers 3. Maybe you mowed enough lawns to be able to afford it yourself. But that was a totally different purchase, and your old NES won't even play on your current TV. Remember what I said about the RF cable socket not being on most modern TVs. Plus, it has that blinky light problem, and the casing has gone yellow, so you really need to send it to odd tinkering to restore. Or, maybe you sold the cartridge for Super Mario Bros. 3 on eBay, or at a garage sale in the interim, or maybe it was stolen, or maybe you lost it, or maybe it broke. Either way, it is as separate a transaction as the 3DS ROM is from the Wii U upgraded Wii ROM. You can't buy Super Mario Bros. 3 anymore. You can't pay Nintendo money. You can't say, shut up and take my money. The only way you can legitimately play that game, if you don't already have it, is to play it on Nintendo Online, and that is effectively as much... You, you only own it as much as you own any movie on Netflix right now in that capacity. In other words, you don't. You're effectively renting it for a monthly blanket fee, and they could choose to take it off at any moment. Now, if you still have that Wii U right now in this very day and age, and that 3DS, they still have the Super Mario 3D ROM on board, or they have the ability to get it from Nintendo, at least I think so, and you can technically perform a migration to a new machine as long as Nintendo keeps letting you do that. That's the way you move all the information from one machine across to a different one. Of course, you then have you have to find a machine and make sure that it's, it's uh, receptive. But it definitely won't play on your Switch. They made sure to cut off that lifeline to our retro games at the door in 2017. And I found out recently that this may have been to do with Nintendo fans buying a ton of retro games on Wii U, but not enough Wii U games, not enough of the games in the blue boxes, which may have contributed to its failure. A victim of our fond memories and the need to recapture them all, so if those didn't exist, there'd be no point having this massive market. 
I mean, I can understand where it's like, well, if we make them buy it again on Switch, then we get them to not even double dip this time, like quintuple dip. All that along with Super Mario All-Stars, uh, the four Super Nintendo remakes of the original Mario games, which launched on the Wii... <laughs> which launched on the Wii in disc form, only means I have actually now lost count of how many times I have legitimately paid money directly to Nintendo in exchange for Super Mario Bros. 3. So I figured a fun way of starting up emulated games might be for someone who to make a painstaking list of every game they have ever bought new and only filling their library with ROMs of those titles. The ethical way of preserving those above-board licenses to play. It's a way. Notice I said new there, because when you get into the pre-owned market, the lines become less clear. I don't think there are many folks with a huge and impressive vintage games library who only ever bought them brand new and sealed from a shop that wasn't a second-hand shop and never paid GameStop or eBay for a pre-owned anything, and also never got a, a game off a friend. How many of us have done that? Just swapsies. Because you honestly don't know how many previous owners that game has had. I'm not saying, oh, it's dirty, I'm saying. Which only affects your decision if you're trying to be entirely ethical and above board here. Because if you bestow yourself this figurative license to play Castlevania Chronicles, which you searched for for years on PlayStation 1 and found secondhand and love, Who's to say whether the previous owner regrets selling it and bestows upon themselves the same license to replay it in ISO ROM format? That's two licenses and Capcom only got paid for one. You can buy Pokemon Fire Red for £60, like I said, the legitimate cartridge money changed hands for all the way back in 2004. Or you could pay £25 for the reproduction cartridge that was made by somebody just 10 years ago. Neither eBay transaction sends Game Freak or Nintendo one additional red cent. Or you could do what so many of us do instead. We hope. We eagerly expect Nintendo to re-release our favourite Game Boy Advance or Nintendo 64 titles on Switch so that we can directly give them money for it. It's a shut up and take my money situation. A handful of titles spring to mind that have actually had this done for them. The Castlevania GBA trilogy got a fantastic collection against the odds from Konami. That's three down. Have a guess how many remain from the full catalog of just Game Boy Advance games. Sharon. Um, so you got three have gone from GBA to uh, Switch. Oh, and Gekido, I also bought that on Switch. I mean, it's got to be at least a few hundred. Two hundred? I'll say four. Four hundred GBA titles. Yeah. It's one thousand and sixty-five. <laughs> yeah. And this is the other massive glaring issue: games get re-released, maybe even remastered but they are in the vast, vast, vast minority relative to the thousands of games that have been made, that have been sold, loved, hated, resold, and now reside in collections, bedrooms, garages, and storage closets, or landfills. When Sega released their micro console Mega Drive, the first thing I wanted to know was which games were on there that aren't 
staples of the same 30 to 40 titles adorning every single Sega collection ever released. The Genesis played host to 903 games, and right now you can legally buy about 6% of them. Some on Switch, some on Steam, some on good old games, some second-hand on old compilation discs are available, and 98% of them in cartridge format spiralling costs are available if you look on the secondary market. Not that this will in any way benefit Sega. But what about the 32X? What about the Saturn? Said nobody. <laughs> what about the Virtual Boy, the Atari Jaguar, the PC Engine, the Wonder Swan? Obviously these aren't, don't interest people in general, but they are part of gaming history nonetheless. It's a gaming history that most of us can only watch on YouTube, being played and talked about by other people. But games are predicated on interaction. Watching long plays and walkthroughs is a considerably different experience to playing them. We were just talking today to Willow about how they relate to horror, and they actually find watching Markiplier playing through a horror game to be oddly comforting. They go to bed with his horror plays. <laughs> You shouldn't be going to bed watching horror games, but for some reason, that's the comfort zone. Having that sense of that you have that person there as an extra filter to experience it with makes it not the same as if Willow tried to go to bed whilst playing, I don't know, Outlast. Enjoy. Put it like this, folks. If it wasn't predicated on playing games being different to watching games, then Sharon and I would do a lot more commissions for video games. So we just kick back and let someone else do the hard work. So the above mentioned 32X and the Saturn and the Virtual Boy are machines that you could feasibly buy secondhand and try to get working. But good luck getting hold of many games. Even the PlayStation Vita is hard to get hold of now after years of Sony not really knowing what to do with it. Put a pin in that, by the way, folks. The original monochrome Game Boy, that uh, green spinach color was just a filter. If you get the Game Boy Pocket uh, onwards, it's it's black and white, effectively. That's, that's what the native game runs at. It has north of 400 games that will never ever see the light of day, simply because they look plain and ugly by today's standards. I don't wanna play a black and white game. And yet, they're part of gaming history. There's and a, a, a similar thing going on with a lot of the Spectrum games. Mm. While there have been uh, emulators that have reproduced a, a handful of them... Jet Set Willy I'm ain't going anywhere. not aware that anybody has replicated tank tracks, for example, mm. which is basically Pong with missiles. And I've heard of tank tracks. And then there's the elephant in the room, arcade games. These are titles built not to be owned, but to gather money as leisure items for businesses. Sure, you, you could buy an arcade cabinet if you were rich enough in the 80s or 90s, and all of those rad kids hangouts in movies made sure to have a bunch lining the walls. But that wasn't the intended business model for arcade games. They were cost prohibitive, incredibly big and bulky and heavy. Over time, vintage machines have actually become actively dangerous since they aren't built to last forever and the accumulated static electricity in the monitors could deliver a shock that could potentially stop your heart. 
The games themselves are simplistic and kind of garish by design. It's like a Vegas slot machine. The SNK Neo Geo was the closest to bridging the gap between home console and arcade perfect experience. Released as a contemporary of the Mega Drive and SNES, this bulky beast with its massive expensive ass cartridges was only really priced affordably for rich businessmen who wanted to bring Fatal Fury, King of Fighters, Samurai Showdown, Metal Slug into their flashy basement dens in the 90s. But as single cabinet experiences, these games aren't worth the hundreds or even thousands of dollars relative to a gaming console, which soon caught up and surpassed them, outmoding the arcade from premier mainstream to niche. And as arcades became niche, consoles became mainstream. And that is where MAME comes in, the multiple arcade machine emulator is based around a collection of 1,900 games thereabouts that would be both ludicrously priced and literally impossible to squeeze into any one home. Here's my house. It has nearly 2,000 arcade units in it. Only, I mean, the, the house would, you'd be, be able to see the house from space. You know, when we go, that's not a house, that's a mansion. Yeah. It's that. And like, imagine if you stepped into the hall with all of these things going at the same time. You remember the cacophony and din of a video game arcade, which had only a dozen uh, units in it. Absolutely. Like, And all of these arcade machines store enough static electricity collectively mm. to restart a Frankenstein's monster. Yeah, you'd, you'd drain the grid. Like I said, ludicrously impossible to squeeze into any one home. Only a fraction of these are currently playable on modern systems. One could argue compellingly that their use has been fulfilled long ago. They collected their quarters for the arcade owners and every pub, gas station, fish and chip shop that invested in a Street Fighter 2 machine. They exist now at a strange imbalance. Being able to press select and throw another virtual coin into the slot means that you aren't really battling a pixelated demon who wants your entire allowance. You can proceed from left to right on Final Fight at a leisurely pace and never get angry at coin sink cheap ass bosses. You are effectively at liberty to explore them to their fullest in ways most games won't allow. Another aspect of this that I'm, I'm not written anything about is if you paid Atari now for anything, not one person who made one of those early 80s Atari games would get one red cent. The Atari now is completely different as a team to the Atari then. The Electronic Arts now is completely ridiculous. Like, the people who made Electronic Arts games with the little yellow tab for the Sega Genesis and Mega Drive have now retired. It's a completely different company. So if the licenses to make money from the original games still exists it's been handed around from pillar to post yeah. and tracking down who actually holds it mm. is nigh on impossible if you can somehow get to the end on uh, old mega drive games uh, they the credits list is actually kind of befuddling they've got like a lot of um nicknames and it, it, I think Castlevania was one of the first ones the NES game where they actually had like what felt like cinema credits but they just wanted to make it feel more cinematic. It wasn't about really crediting the team that made it at Konami. And this all played into a culture that for far, far too long has undervalued the work of creative individuals, unless they're one of a handful of industry superstars.
So section four, restoring extinct games. I feel like um, Peter O'Toole when I say this. There are many reasons the Sega Mega Drive collections don't contain 900 games, though I'm sure the folks who put them together would like them to. But one of the chief reasons we will literally never see many games re-released in any legal capacity ever again is licensing. As we record this show, I am in anticipation of GoldenEye 64 finally getting put back out there. This was the centerpiece of my 1997. It was the jagged little pill of my gaming life. It was an experience you couldn't, or I suppose the fat of the land. Smack my bitch up. That was my sound of 97. It was an experience you couldn't get on PC or anywhere else. GoldenEye was the game I played with Paul and Tony, the two friends I started podcasting with 10 years later. And around about that time, 10 years later, there were reports of a cleaned up remaster launching on Xbox 360's Live Arcade, much like Perfect Dark was. That never happened. Turns out the game was made but three different license holders were in conflict. Microsoft had Rare, the developers who made and remade the game, Nintendo had the N64 connection, and Sony owned the Bond movie franchise. And because these multi-billion dollar corporations couldn't stop squabbling over who was owed the biggest piece of this pie, the pie was never released. They should have grown the pie. <laughs> we need to grow the pie so that everyone gets a bigger slice. You can't grow a pie! Because... It's a pie! But in this metaphorical case, there was indeed a pie that had potential for growth to everyone's benefit. But because everyone was jealously guarding their share of the ingredients, nobody got to taste its sweet, sweet golden apple layers, and nobody got to enjoy the real gold that would have come rolling in had they been able to release it across all three machines, PS3, Wii, and Xbox 360. This reminds me very much of that piece that I included a while back where Jim Stephanie Sterling described the creator of the Metal Arms games asking Blizzard owned by Activision if he might have the license back so that he could make a sequel since they weren't doing anything with it and they said no because they'd rather nothing at all was made than anyone ever receive one thin dime for putting in work they're not prepared to do because their financial divination which I can only assume is achieved by examining the intestines of cyber chickens hasn't yet told them that Metal Arms is trending on that note, Ubisoft, you monsters, give the license and responsibility of making a follow-up to Beyond Good and Evil to Laura Kate Dale now. The upgraded GoldenEye game was leaked suspiciously online a few years back and became playable with a 360 emulator on PC called Xenia almost certainly named after Onotop from Goldeneye, and somehow the bigwigs managed to agree for five minutes, long enough to get it out there. Fingers crossed at the time of recording, but I'm in my 40s now. I wanted this in my 20s and in my 30s. How many years were spent not being able to play Goldeneye because of licensing? And because the N64 is notoriously difficult to emulate. Think of the Simpsons arcade game. It was available on Xbox Live Arcade and PSN to download for a while. Now it isn't. Same with Konami's X-Men, Marvel vs. Capcom 1 and 2. 
This summer we got the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Cowabunga collection which delivered 13 games from that first era in incredibly accessible form. But notably, while the original arcade game had been available for a while on PSN and now isn't, the more beloved of the two, Turtles in Time, had not been seen in arcade or Super Nintendo re-release form for decades, aside from the from the ground up reshelled remake which a lot of fans hated and is also now unavailable because of licensing. If you uh, look into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, there are a lot of games that are entirely extinct now. Xbox Live Games with Gold recently struck two out of the four games handed out each month while subscribed to that service. They are no longer doling out backwards compatible 360 games, which is sour news if you've been waiting for Bionic Commando Rearmed or Shank to reappear and to make their move across to now last generation hardware. My Xbox One isn't current anymore. For this reason and others, I am cancelling my gold subscription for the first time ever after 16 years. I will just have to pick up mid-tier and indie games I don't actually play and just sit in my collection on Switch and Steam sales like everyone else. But consider Alien vs Predator, arguably Capcom's best side-scrolling brawler from a long list of greats, never made available to legally buy aside from that one arcade stick that they sold a few years ago with a whopping 16 games on it, all of them available on various Capcom console collections except Alien vs Predator. Now only available second-hand for £250 and you can't buy it. Or remember the Punisher Brawler or my favourite arcade fighting game X-Men Children of the Atom. That hasn't been available to play at home since the Sega Saturn in the mid-90s. Think of all the sports games with all those real-life player names you will never get to legally play an exact version of an old and beloved FIFA or John Madden Football or NHLPA Hockey and the console versions of comic games, X-Men 1 and 2 on the Mega Drive, Alien 3 which in multiple versions is either a surprisingly good Metroidvania on the SNES or a breakneck arcade maze survival on Mega Drive, the adventures of Batman and Robin, Batman Returns, dozens of wrestling games for the WWF, WWE, WCW, Nitro, Dragon the Bruce Lee Story, the Indiana Jones games made by Lucasfilm, the Super Star Wars trilogy, many Jurassic Parks, Robocop vs Terminator, and then there are games that many of us would almost certainly shout, SHUT UP AND TAKE MY MONEY, if they were re-released today. EA's Road Rash and Strike series, Rocket Knight Adventures, The Outruns. One of my favourite racing games of all time is Outrun Online Arcade, which I bought legitimately on 360 and was never ported across to Xbox One, and since 2011, when the Ferrari licence expired, it cannot be bought at all. You also can't just re-download it directly from the shop. I am currently on my fourth or fifth Xbox 360. I've literally lost count of how many have broken over the years. And my Xbox 360, when I plug it in, has started to chug. When I go to my games, there is just an array of broken images and question marks, as in it's not pulling from Xbox Live what they should look like. I, it, if you remember, we had to give up trying to play Rock Band 3 on there because it kept saying, wait a minute, who's with you? And I was like, a guest. And they were like, well, they can't play any of your tracks that you've bought. They've got to be legitimate Xbox paying customers for Xbox Live. And I was like, okay, this is Willow. They have an Xbox Live account. No, don't know who they are. Well, who's, well, you're going to need to give us the password. Here's the password. Don't recognize it. Okay, here's Sharon and here's her password. No, I don't know who she is. Fine. 
well done rock band, we'll stop playing you. So I had to make sure that I scoured my previous 360 purchases in order to claim every single game that wasn't accessible through the store. And that meant scrolling through a list of 2,000 downloads, four at a time, with a slow refresh rate. So it's like, one, two, three, four, wait, one, two, three, four, wait, one, two, three, four. It's every rock band song I ever bought, every trailer and demo I foolishly downloaded, not comprehending how in the future there would be no way to sort them by type, every piece of avatar tat. The list is prone to crashing. And then when I get something like Conan the Barbarian, it says, you can play the trial of this game. And I'm like, motherfucker, you know I bought this game legitimately. Yeah, yeah, you can play the trial of this game. My games are dying. Which brings us to Section 5, The Ticking Clock. This leads me to a rather more existentially ruffling part of this conceptual web, the imprecision of permanence between physical and digital. If you buy something physically, you can resell it, lose it, or damage it, so it's impermanent. But a digital game you have forever. But you can choose to take care of your physical game and keep it forever. But a digital game can be made unavailable, whether by being marooned on a now defunct console like Metal Gear Solid The Twin Snakes on GameCube, and if you've heard our show on that, you'll remember the hoops I had to jump through in order to play that legitimately, including buying an old Wii and a GameCube controller and a memory card and the right cable. Or if it's just phased out because of lapsed licenses like Darkstalkers Resurrection on Xbox 360. Or if it's made not only unavailable to buy digitally, but if it's not on your console already, it's erased forever, like PT and Flappy Bird. So, yes, a digital game can die. But if you invest in a forever physical copy of the game by limited run, you can have it forever. So no more worrying that Scott Pilgrim is going to just evaporate. But you also have to pay twice as much for it, and you have to either wait while everyone else is playing the game digitally, or buy it digitally as well. And the cartridge that you get sent by the time they finally send them out may not include all the DLC that released in the interim, like Streets of Rage 4. And you end up paying more for the limited run game than you would have done just paying for the Game of the Year version with all the DLC. But if you get the physical disc of an Xbox One game, it may well be backwards compatible with the Series X. But the Series X and the PS5 Pro are more expensive and harder to get hold of than the kind without disc trays, because Microsoft and Sony are finally going in for the kill on GameStop because they want to sell you these titles direct and often only part of the game is on that disc anyway. So if the rest stops being available for download, or if your disk drive stops working, what then? I replaced my third Xbox One, just Xbox One, not including the five Xbox 360s, with a fourth because the third was whirring hard and loud and wouldn't play my Aquaman 4K disc, the fourth one is now very choosy about whether or not it can read Blu-ray discs at all. I have a thousand Blu-rays and I find streaming services ghastly in terms of what I want to see. So not only 
Do Microsoft have my game collection by the nuts, they also have my movie watching experience too. If we wholly invest in physical, we are at the mercy of the manufacturers of devices that will play physical within a technological landscape that is insistently pushing us towards an all-digital future every single moment of our lives. If we wholly invest in digital, we are at the mercy of ephemeral and fleeting licensing agreements in terms of what we can access in our vast library of tentative permits to play. Section 6. The Community This is all a very roundabout way of saying that I am very thankful for the archiving and curation aspects of emulation. Not only are the communities diligent at exhaustive cataloguing and sharing information, they are better at making firmware than the manufacturers. Nearly all of the handhelds that I talked about earlier, released over the past few years from Ambernic and Powkiddy, Mayu, Odroid, come with stock firmware on cheap, unreliable, unbranded micro SD cards. In almost every case, it is best to research the machine that you're buying and flash a brand new SD card from either SanDisk or Samsung with a fresh firmware compiled and refined by certain coding wizards in the retro community. MULEC, ArcOS, Badocera, they've gone from ugly and unintuitive in just a matter of years to elegant and smooth with fan-created themes available in abundance. In recent years, a lot of you may have noticed how toxic the AAA gaming community have gotten. I attribute this to a decrease in moderation from the 90s and early 2000s to the late 2000s and 2010s when saying whatever you like to whomever you like online with zero repercussions became more important than protecting people from horrible assholes. Couple that with a drift towards live services and the Las Vegas pachinko parlor loot box scene that became the base game storefront roadmaps towards some kind of hodgepodge of Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Destiny, NBA 2K and Fortnite. Got a selection of good things on sale, stranger. Hit the lever. What are you buying? And I became increasingly disinterested in staying current. Though, it should be noted I have been devouring indie titles on Switch, which is the machine that Sharon and Willow love intensely more than any other that they've played, with the 3DS being the only one that comes close. Would that be accurate? I would say so, and the 3DS is a long way behind. But what I found in the retro scene was far from the gatekeeping, permanently, performatively angry, jealous and loud gamer boys. Everyone seems to be quite helpful with each other. There are occasional snippy answers on Reddit, but by and large it feels like everyone has embraced a kind of gaming socialism, wherein you ask for help and you get it, and then when someone asks for help, you can maybe give some back. One of the most popular backends containing most of the emulator cores is an app called RetroArc, or at least capable of containing all the emulator cores. You could play through a whole game and never check backstage for what's going on, but the level of tweaking that you can apply to graphics 
filters, performance, controls, shortcuts, cheats, even achievements on retro games is astronomical with RetroArch. This can look incredibly daunting and often seems to be unhelpful until you familiarize yourself and recode it to remember your preferences. Again, having people advise me on this and being able to follow calm, clear video tutorials has been a godsend. All the curation and cataloging, playtesting and publication of results to hone performance and help steer setups in the right direction as well as painstakingly assembled art sets to apply to your games through free services like Scraper. Give them game boxes, logos, screenshots and short little gameplay videos that turn a title on a plain list into something vibrant and expressive of what the experience of playing it is like. It allows you to effectively make your own gaming museum. And that is something I've really been longing for. Hey everybody, this is Russ from Retro Game Core. So the Ambernick RG350 devices were my first serious entry into the world of retro handheld gaming, and they hold a special place in my heart, but to be honest, I really haven't given them the time and attention that they deserve. There's just so many other options out there. Well, I'm happy to report that I have a new reason to play around with these devices, and that's thanks to a new software image called Atom. And Atom is a customized software image that is meant to be an all-in-one solution so that you can get started with the RG350 and 280 devices and also unlock their full potential at the same time and through an extremely simple installation process. And I'm going to walk you through that here today in this video. So we're going to start from having zero knowledge about this device to having it fully customized for you in less than 30 minutes. I'm super excited about this one. So without any further delay, let's get started. Section seven, the modding scene. These next two sections are shorter and less explorative. One could make a whole show on any one element about to come up. For a while, there have been consoles and handhelds with enough onboard memory storage to be able to jailbreak them and expand your library. One could again approach this with the mindset that they have been abandoned, and in the cases where it is literally impossible to pay the manufacturers for new games, what you are opting out of is paying other collectors for their copies or in many cases, recovering digital games from the abyss of extinction. Sony's PSP was plagued with piracy during its lifespan, though Sony sold 82 million units and it was a success. They tried to go all digital near the end of the PSP's life in 2009 with the nifty PSP Go, but it is a tough prospect, suggesting that folks buy a new version of their handheld that won't accept any of their hard-bought UMD disc games. It would have been an idea to remember that for the Vita, a handheld of fantastic power, which was painfully close to being the Switch just five years before the Switch, the OLED screen of the first model remains the best looking handheld screen in existence, save for the Switch OLED. There were a ton of games which used the touch screen, the back touch, the tilt controls in conjunction with the face buttons and Sony shot themselves in the foot with astonishingly expensive mandated proprietary Sony Vita memory cards adding a serious extra cost to the initial purchase. Both of these handhelds have a thriving modding scene, not least to allow Vita owners to throw in a weighty micro SD card that doesn't cost them an arm and a leg. This Vita modding process involves an extremely lengthy series of steps, some of which, if done wrong, may brick your system, and I definitely would not recommend it for newcomers. That's an advanced jailbreak. 
On the other hand, the easiest machine to mod appears to be the humble Nintendo DS, since the original Chonky Boy model and the far more beloved second model, the Lite, don't have any onboard storage. The whole thing is done with something called an R4 Gold card, which you load a properly formatted micro SD card into, and then the whole thing goes into the cartridge slot. The menus are basic and easy to navigate with a variety of themes. Meanwhile, the DSi and 3DS can be modded and kitted out with loaded memory cards. This process is fiddly, but less so than the Vita. Even more compelling arguments could be made for rescuing of DS and 3DS games from extinction. Unlike, say, the Super Nintendo, where the basic games could be played on any screen with access to your standard four-button controls, the DS and 3DS are unique. They have touchscreens, styluses, a microphone, a closing sleep function, and many games use that feature innovatively, making even the few DS games that were available for a time on the Wii U a little fiddly. And aside from the original hardware, if I could design a machine that could replicate the DS on a TV, it would be the Wii U. But the main issue is that effectively the lion's share of these games utilized dual screens, and they've not only disappeared, they aren't even practical to attempt to re-release on Switch. Unless, like, say, Mega Man ZX, they barely use the touchscreen. Like the Vita, and indeed the Wii U, this excludes every title that really tried to do something with a unique way of playing. So in other words, if it was innovative with the hardware, it's marooned on that hardware. So Gravity Rush, Little Deviance, Escape Plan, Killzone Mercenary, which made melee attacks finger-based, Uncharted Golden Abyss, which saw you making paper and charcoal rubbings of engraved statues with your finger on the touchscreen, and the extraordinary joys of Tearaway, gone. And on Wii U, Splatoon 1 showed you the whole map on that gamepad screen. The Zombie U port on Xbox is far less interactive, likewise LEGO City Undercover. And then there's Game & Wario, Nintendo Land, Super Mario Maker. The Wii U can also be modded. And for the 3DS library, looking forward into a future beyond the original hardware, not only does it lose that touchscreen stylus precision and two screens that made experiences like Nintendo Dogs and Phantom Hourglass so tactile? But you also lose the 3D effect. Now, it is easy to hand wave this as something you don't personally like, but for games like Super Mario 3D Land, the translation to Wii U and Switch, devoid of the depth, never came off as quite as special. The same with Captain Toad Treasure Tracker, Resident Evil Revelations. Star Fox 64 briefly became 3D, now it's just 64 again. Donkey Kong Country Returns 3D, and it would apply to Metroid Samus Returns. And A Link Between Worlds, my literal favorite 2D, 3D Zelda. Not to mention the secret hidden best way to play the first two Streets of Rage games solo, the remastered 3DS versions, which present you with a charming, pixelated, brawling diorama. From the perspective of those experiences slowly eroding from the world as over time each hardware unit fails and no new ones are ever made, this is preservation. There's a increasing propensity for museums to have gaming sections, gaming displays. But there is a limit to what they can do. Mm. They can sh they can show you a console. They can put that in a cabinet. They, they can't can trust the it. public to play. Well, exactly. They can't really show you the games. Mm. 
<clears throat> I've seen it done, but it's it's more as temporary art exp uh, installations. And then there's modding games, which again could fill its own show or series of shows. The game modding scene is not new, but it's noteworthy that with access to the ROMs and game code, certain fans have been able to make whole new Castlevanias, Metroids, Mario and Sonic games. All kinds of brawler characters have been inserted into various iterations of Streets of Rage 2, including Final Fight Guys, the Street Fighters, the Ninja Turtles, the Retro City Girls. Final Fantasy VI has received loving treatment on both Super Nintendo and Game Boy Advance, fixing the early compromised translations for the home console and sprucing up the graphics and sound on the handheld version, as well as eliminating bugs and glitches until there's actually a genuine decision to be made as to which version you want to play. And then there's MSU-1, which incorporates CD-quality soundtracks into Super Nintendo games. So when you play Batman Returns, it includes lossless Danny Elfman music. And while much of the above are handled through simply playing ROMs, there is also a side of the community that squeezed the modded games back onto cartridges, making them, much like the restored and revitalized Game Boy Advance hardware, better than when they were first released. Section 8. The Heavy Hitters I would call this the advanced section, and we again won't be spending too long here. The short of it is, with the release of the super powerful Steam Deck, and spurred on by the success of the much more sub-PSP level handheld since 2020, certain companies have been running Kickstarters for formidable next-level machines that can play some GameCube, some PS2, some Wii, maybe some 3DS. There is no point going on much about them right now because tech moves so fast. Their price points are at least double the handhelds I've been talking about. In many cases, you aren't even buying the machine. You are backing an ongoing project and the perk you receive is the machine. I'm frankly amazed none of these have turned out to be horrific scams like the Gizmondo and the Phantom. These are not the place to start. Even though they can emulate retro consoles with ease and indeed stream things like Steam and PlayStation Plus and Xbox Game Pass, they are almost too powerful to be a one-size-fits-all. It seems like no one machine can ever satisfy every requirement. One of the requirements, like size or price, is going to be a negative factor. And this is fine. We don't need just one friend who we depend on for absolutely everything. It's way too much pressure. What I will say though is that too much power might not be the pinnacle of the on-the-go gaming experience. When I visited my mother this past summer, I bought two handhelds with me. One big chungus, the RGB10 Max 2, and one tiny little pixie, the Mayu Mini. Guess which one stayed in my bag aside from one occasion and which one stayed in my pocket and got whipped out for a few minutes of fun every time there was a lull in conversation. A big thank you to this week's sponsors, Aaron Lecluse, Abel Savard, Alejandra Vargas, Alex Brewington, Angus Lee, Benjamin Hoffer, Brian Novak, Cassandra Newman, Chris Finnick, Christopher Wolf, Kieran Dashler, Connor Kennedy, Dan Mayer, Daniel Salguero, Dan Hepner, Dave Hickman, David Sheely, Finbar Nicole, Frankie Punzi, Greg Downing, Jameis Enright, Jesse Ferguson, Joe Crow, Joel Robinson, Joe G, Josh Waster, Kat Esman, Kevin Vahey, Lorraine Chisholm, Marty Polmeyer, Matthew A. Siebert, 
Michael Hasko, Robbie Crow, Sarah Montgomery, Timu Helles Hayu, Tim Rosensky, Timothy Green, Toby Skills Jungius, Tom Painter, Trey Contreras, and Valencia Burns. So let me finish off with a summation and some things you might like to check out. In the case of nearly all of these, you should look at the Retro Game Call Guide on how to flash new firmware onto your own reliable micro SD card. If you go straight to that website, it will give you a very handy pictorial view of all of the systems covered. And these can all be found on AliExpress and sometimes on eBay. But either way, make sure you go with a reputable seller who has sold a bunch of them already and has decent feedback. Okay, in terms of handhelds, the best little starter that I have found is the Powkiddy V90. This is built like a Game Boy Advance SP, so it's got that clamshell design. It will set you back 45 bucks, maybe less, and it will play up to 16-bit systems with no problems once you fix the firmware, otherwise you may have problems with the Super Nintendo. Most of these handhelds will come with loads and loads of retro games. A lot of the collections are horribly curated, in random numbered order so it's impossible to find anything, with dodgy games and games in the wrong language. Again, flash your own firmware and start building your own library. But as I was saying about the Powkiddy V90, it looks and feels a bit like a Happy Meal toy, but it is durable, very pocketable, and uncomplicated. There's also the Mayu Mini that I just mentioned. These look like a palm-sized Game Boy with a gorgeous little screen, and they are sold out everywhere right now, but when they come back in stock, that becomes my recommended starter machine. So if you can find that for a reasonable price, 60, 70, the Mayu Mini beats the Powkiddy V90. For lower mid-range, if you want a really attractive wood-grain effect vertical Game Boy-shaped handheld, the Ambonic RG351V will scratch that itch for 95 bucks. It is the Game Boy I always wanted. And if you want a really reliable horizontal handheld for the same price, the one I found myself going back to time and time again, even though it's a way older model, is the RG350P, also by Ambonic. Not the RG350, the RG350P. Ambonic have really excellent build quality. The buttons feel fantastic. It just sits in the hand really comfortably. And by using the Adam image, the operating system mentioned earlier, that allows you to streamline your experience to be fast and intuitive. So just whip it out of your pocket, turn it on if you're in the bus queue, put it in sleep mode when you get on, take it off sleep mode when you sit down. The RG350P gave me a Game Boy Advance that feels better than the modded Game Boy Advance and it can play all the way up to PlayStation 1 as well. Above that, you have the upper mid-range machines that can play Nintendo 64, PSP, and Dreamcast. Now, I've found the best results for these are going to be had from an Android system rather than the Linux ones that most of the ones I've been talking about so far operate on. And in terms of bang for your buck, I would recommend the Retroid Pocket 3. They are 150 bucks. 
and you can get them delivered directly to you from the Retroid store. A lot of folks swear by the Retroid Pocket 2 and the 2 Plus, but I found the form factor boxy and uncomfortable to play, so it just got left in a drawer. The 3 looks and feels more like a Switch Lite. And if you want a handy TV box that will play all systems up to some PSP games, the Super Console X Pro is about a hundred bucks. There are lots of variations of these on the market, almost all of them made in some way by Kinhank. But for the hundred bucks price point, you get a solid package. Again, flash your own firmware. I recommend 351 Elect. I would also recommend the extremely well-made retro and modern style controllers by 8BitDo, which will also work with your Switch and PC, and it's worth getting some USB receivers for them as well. For the high-end experience, I've set aside this special section for those who are thinking about getting one of these anyway, the Steam Deck. Now, I don't have one yet for various reasons, and I am waiting for a slimmed down light version of this absolute chonker. However, some of you might have access to the funds on this and want to just cut straight to something that can handle pretty much everything. So I'm gonna hand you over to expert Taki Udon for more experienced details from the introduction to his video, This Could Replace Every Device I Own. And considering that his channel is predicated on dry, factual, technical assessment, wary of hyperbole, that is quite a statement. Is the Steam Deck the ultimate emulation handheld? This is the question that I've been working on over the last two months, and after testing and filming over 250 games from the last 30 years, I finally have an answer. And that answer is yes. Even though I enjoy collecting and using a wide variety of gaming handhelds, I've always been on the lookout for something that could potentially be the handheld to replace them all. And if I had to pare down my entire collection to a single device, at this moment, I would pick the Steam Deck. This is a conclusion that kind of took me by surprise as I always thought that the Steam Deck would be too bulky or too heavy to be my only emulation handheld. When it comes to devices that I use outside of making content here on YouTube, I focus on several things, and not all of these are things that the Steam Deck does better than other products that I own. These would be software and support, product quality, and price versus performance. When it comes to software and support, the Steam Deck is by far the best. Since getting my original Steam Deck, I've received constant bug fixes and quality of life improvements from Valve that are easily downloaded and installed on the device itself. This flow of support from the manufacturer is great, but the real sauce is in the community support. The Steam Deck has one of the biggest user bases out of any current handheld, and with that comes a plethora of software that you can use and take advantage of. I've referred to this as feeling like you're on the winning team when discussing the differences between the Raspberry Pi ecosystem and other competitors, and I feel like it fully applies here. If there is something that you want that is not part of the default Steam Deck experience, you will probably find that someone in the community has already made it or is currently working on it. This could be things like theme support to turn your Steam Deck into a Wii or custom panel controls to adjust color and saturation. But the main benefit that doesn't get talked about too much when you buy into one of these winning products is that you have a very good chance of being able to solve any potential issue that you have with a quick search from a post from someone with the same issue. Just recently, the PS1 emulator on my device was not performing as well as it was the day before. A quick Google search brought me to a Reddit post from another Steam Deck owner talking about this problem with a copy and paste solution that I could apply to quickly solve this issue and get back to gaming. 
I came across a bunch of things like this while making this video where the solution was easy to find only because the Steam Deck user base is as big as it is. If this was any other handheld, these problems would have taken a lot longer to figure out. The Steam Deck also scores high marks when it comes to product quality. Even though it is pretty large, the Steam Deck is very ergonomic and it has a great set of controls. The controls on this are probably the best total package out of anything on the market today, but there are handhelds that have better individual controller components than what is offered here. The controller layout was strange at first, but I think it's perfectly suited for a broad mix of retro titles all the way up to modern ones based on my testing. To play these games, we have a large 7-inch screen. Even though I wish that Valve would have used a panel with better color accuracy than the one that they went with, this is still a great panel for gaming, and it's big enough that the Steam Deck can easily be played from a lap on a train or on a flight. Outside of those two scenarios, I think the front-firing speakers are much better than the ones used in a lot of other devices that you can buy today, and they make the gaming experience much better. And finally, at $400 for the base configuration, plus a few extra dollars for an SD card, the Steam Deck has one of the best price versus performance ratios on the market. There are cheaper devices that probably beat this out from a pure emulation standpoint, as well as devices that are price matched to the Steam Deck with 6800U processors that are more capable products, but there's no denying how much functionality you can get out of this device. This entire video was filmed on a 512GB model, but everything here is possible on the cheapest Steam Deck SKU. For that money, you can emulate all the way up to PS3 with varying degrees of success, depending on the title, with better performance as you move down the line. I picked about 300 games or so to add to the internal storage of my Steam Deck, and I used an app called Steam Ron Manager to add them to the Steam Deck game list. I'm an advocate of curating game lists on devices like this so you don't have choice overload, so I tried to be very mindful of the games that I added. Normally I wouldn't use a front end on a device like this, but the whole thing is so tightly integrated into SteamOS that it is much easier to go this route after you handle all of the annoying issues getting everything going. At this point, I can launch a ROM just like any normal Steam game, and it will open up inside the correct emulator. If I was going to have more than 300 games on my Steam Deck, I would probably go with Emulation Station because it is a much better option. So as I said, this is more for people who were going to get a Steam Deck anyway, as opposed to people who are like, oh, I think I might just get a Steam Deck. It's a hefty investment hopefully becoming more reasonable as the years go on. Though I would still recommend getting a little handheld just to play on the go. I'll refer you to the experience at my mother's. I've had an Ein Odin for a while now and I adore it, but I still gravitate back to those smaller handhelds because nothing beats a quick, comfortable, pick up and play, focused experience. Digging deeper, there are a variety of mods that you can apply to PSP, PS3, Wii, Wii U, 3DS, and Vita. The YouTube channel to check out for information on that and more is Blaine Locklater. If you go to eBay, you can find the R4 Gold Pro cards for the original DS for about 15 bucks. This is again the cheapest, easiest mod. Make sure you get the newer, updated ones, again from a seller who has a lot of positive feedback. 
Odd Tinkering is the YouTube channel for therapeutic restorations. My favourite solder boy, if you want to see someone apply a new backlit IPS screen to an old Nintendo handheld, is a channel called The Retro Future. Notably, this breathing new life into abandoned machines is the polar opposite of making a cretinous table by sealing 15 Game Boy Colors in liquid plastic so they are permanently off the secondary market and can never be played again, like that bellend Logan Paul who only uses his powers to annoy people. And once again, a big shout out to Russ from Retro Gamecore who has effectively remotely tutored me from blithering idiot who doesn't know the first thing about emulation, all the way up here to blithering idiot who knows quite a bit about emulation. Then just go ahead and hit start. It's going to ask you, do you really want to do this? And you say, yeah, man, I want to do it. And even if none of this is information that you, dear listener, are going to be utilizing moving forward, I spent a long, long time planning this episode out, and I hope that I have given some perspective on where gaming stands, past, present, and future, and I hope it's been entertaining along the way. And finally, a massive round of applause for Smooth McGroove, who performs these astonishing a cappella renditions of classic gaming tunes. Check out his YouTube channel for little helpings of pure joy. I've been Alex Shaw, and school's out. Yeah.